0: Welcome to the Government Technology Insider Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Langan. In this episode, we are taking a closer look at strategies being used by the US Air Force to improve software delivery. The Air Force is a hub for DevSecOps and rapid development of software capabilities to meet mission needs at the speed of relevancy. By partnering AI with application programming interfaces, defense agencies can streamline secure software development, accelerating the delivery cycle while reducing errors and vulnerabilities. And for our conversation, I sat down with Jay Bonsi, who's the Chief Technology Officer at the US Air Force, and Nate Aiken, Senior Director of Air Force Market at Maximus, to discuss strategies for using AI in conjunction with APIs to improve user experience, boost software security, and pave the way for JAD C 2 I hope you enjoy our conversation today. And Jay and Nate, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Matt. Happy to be here.
1: Yeah, Matt. Great to talk to you again. Thanks for having us.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. And let's jump right in. So DOD tech leaders frequently say that API sharing is really key to making JAD C 2 a reality. First question is for Jay. Jay, can you break this down for us and explain the importance of API sharing within the DOD and really, what is the role of AI here as well? So for the DoD, uh, it works like any other um,
2: massive uh, global organization, and we can look to how large tech companies have solved the interdepartmental coordination necessary to to launch a massive system. And so JADC2 being uh, this view of a large uh, battle space awareness, fire control, command and control, integrated system is no different than any other massive software ecosystem. And we've seen APIs be one of the key innovations to taking that very complex problem and boiling it down into a, a set of conventions that organizations can follow. And by using APIs to express the promises in between organizations, and having technology that enforces those promises, uh, we're able to really scale the development of applications that depend on those organizational level and sort of business level promises. And so for JADC2 to get there, it means the Air Force in between Air Force departments have to be able to uh, clean up those promises and to be able to establish those kind of codes of technical conduct. And once we do that, we'll then be able to present that to the joint force and then even further afield to our coalition partners about how they can rely upon us and in an automated way, call into our data and services. Uh, We also know from industry that it is a good baseline for modern application uh, patterns, but it's going to require us to have this incredibly Uh, rich set of services to get there. So this is gonna be one of the defining sort of technical and organizational challenges uh,
0: that the military faces. That's great, thanks Jay. So Nate, what would you say are the three top considerations for the Air Force when building out interoperable solutions for data-driven decision-making in theater and also how can AI support these
1: efforts? Thanks Matt, great question. So I think if you would ask me that question six months ago, I would have probably answered it through a pure technology lens, um, that there was a a single framework or a solution that could create interoperability. Um, But what I have learned in a a conversation that is more um, persistent and prevalent um, as we are working with our defense clients is that interoperability and integration are not the same thing. Data integration is a supporting element of interoperability, but interoperability really needs to consider different contexts that I'll characterize as layers, um, and I've got four. So if uh, if that if that's okay, even though you asked for three, the uh, the first one would be the technology layer. This is the one that we most often discuss. It gets brought up in you know conversations around data and AI. But the data must be published, and it's got to be accessible through standardized interfaces. And then you have the actual data and format layer. Um, the data and its accompanying metadata are structured um, according to the agreed upon models and the data is codified uh, using standard terminology and lexicons. And then you've got two elements that often don't get discussed, but are very important. It's the human layer you got to create a culture of understanding among your users and your producers of the data regarding classifications and taxonomies of data. Now the human layer is particularly interesting because it's directly related to the previous two that I mentioned, the technology and data format layers, because the the human understanding of the relationships between the data sets, those, those formatting layers, is crucial for machine to machine interoperability, the technology layer. And then you have the organizational layer. You know What is the policy and governance for identifying responsibility for the data collection, the processing and analysis, and dissemination across organizations? So those will be the considerations that I would say the Air Force needs to take into account when building these solutions. So how can AI support these efforts? AI-powered Integration platforms—they can um, contribute automation to the process of connecting and synchronizing data between all of the disparate systems. Uh, AI can also help identify the data sources and ensure that the data is consistent across the system systems. Uh, natural language processing—we uh, can be—you can use that to understand the meaning and context of data, um, making it easier to map uh, and integrate the data from various sources. And natural language processing can also help resolve semantic differences in the way that the data is represented. And then AI can assist in enforcing data governance policies. This goes back to the human and organizational layer. Um, AI can automatically identify and flag data compliance issues. So there's a, you know, there's definitely a planning effort that needs to take place, but also consideration of how AI can be a force multiplier in those considerations. That's great, thanks, Nate. So how do
0: you both envision
1: the Air Force's infrastructure and
0: archite- architecture changing to better support the needs of AI and AI-enabled APIs? And uh, we'll start with Jay. So when we
2: take a look at all these disparate systems that need to come together uh, to, to develop you know, what, what kind of Nate referred to as that truly interoperable system, we have requirements that have different heritage. We have, um, you know, some of our ICAM requirements are a bit of an upgunning from old school Active Directory days or are based on DOD PKI or heavily person focused. And so we're going to need to take a look and make sure that we get the organizational layer intent correct and then reach down into specific programs to make sure that we get it right. So for instance, our ICAM focus needs to uh, move away from the person entity focus that it has today. Right now, we're very focused on our fire ecosystem, uh, making sure that we meet our audit and compliance uh, responsibilities, which are heavy drivers and provide a heavy demand signal into the ICAM ecosystem. But to say, how does that work with uh, Internet of Things, how does it work with cloud, how does it work with on-premise devices, how do we uh, make sure that organizations can grant credentials which give access to data that another organization has put out into the world, and how do we follow their business rules and the associated rules and laws uh, governing uh, data and privacy. And so how we manage uh, those layers and how we manage the API registration and how we manage those roles and our identity governance pieces are going to have to get a lot more nuanced. We're also going to have to expand upon the data dictionary work that the CDAO and other organizations have started uh, to be able to make sure that that also touches into things like application uh, control interfaces, which is uh, not a place where we've typically had a particularly strong opinion. And it's also gonna force us to focus on the developer friendliness of a lot of our enterprise services, which has not been an area of strength. Um, So we have our software factories, um, which are very much focused on how they uh, train and field software developers. And then we often have um, core enterprise services and the two don't have a strong linkage today. And that's gonna have to be something that um, we need to correct going forward so that our data ecosystem uh, can serve as both sort of the analyst community, who is um, resident or co-resident with these large data platforms, but also our developer community that's going to take that data and do the fusion with data from other sources and
0: other departments to get to that JADC2 world. Great, good stuff there, Jay. Nate, anything to add to that one? Any
1: thoughts? Yeah, well, the first part of my answer, Matt, would be that it's not so much a change in infrastructure and architecture but more of an increased reliance um, and utilization of containerization and orchestration and DevSecOps. Jay mentioned the software factories and you know from an industry standpoint Air Force is leading the way through organizations like Kessel Run and Level Up Codeworks Works and in integrating these these tools. Technologies like Docker uh, and orchestration tools like Kubernetes will they'll help manage the AI model deployments more efficiently, and then secondly, you know, I see a move from I would say the traditional approach of using data lakes uh, to manage and organize data to more of a Mesh or fabric architecture. Data lakes are costly, and moving the data, you know, introduces security and privacy concerns. You know, depending on the nature of the data being managed, and also there can be just a general lack of accountability and ownership of the data. It's all stored in one place. So the meshes provide several advantages. You know, individual teams are responsible for their own data. It makes enterprise data sharing easier to scale. Um, because as you're adding increments of data, you're also bringing the unique owners with them who are going to be responsible for quality, reliability, and accessibility. Mesh fabric in, is more flexible and agile because as I said, each data owner can choose the right infrastructure and tools and technologies for their own individual data needs. And then uh, you know the mesh can also provide easier accessibility. The, the mesh promotes uh, creation of catalogs and metadata repositories, which can enhance discovery and access for end users. So to add on to that, that very much describes the
2: trajectory of Air Force's maturation through our data process. And so we have these data platforms which grew up attached to certain communities, whether it's logistics or cybersecurity or personnel um, or our analyst communities. And there was an initial push to get a lot of data into these systems uh, in a way that looked kind of like surrendering your data to a data broker or or a big data platform and then after that it was unclear about whose responsibility it was to uh, make sure that we're providing the right access or providing the right controls Uh, the platforms all did a great job of broadly speaking enforcing security enforcing good login standards enforcing Um, good structure of the data. But there are, as you stated, drawbacks to that. We're starting to feel the drawbacks around data freshness, data reliability, making sure that you are talking directly to a canonical source. But to get to the place where you have that true data mesh or data fabric type architecture requires a lot more services and a lot more sophistication around the use cases rather than bring your data and we will kind of handle access uh, to it on your behalf. And so Uh, We are working through those um, both architectural nuances, but also kind of the human level uh, nuances. And I think um, our C2 ecosystem is going to be the big
0: clarifier uh, for us to get us to focus on this in the next year. Thanks to both of you for providing great insights there. So, Nate, you know, as the pace of automated cyber attacks accelerates, how can the Air Force use AI and threat intelligence API to combat these threats?
1: Yeah, Matt, I have three ways um, that I think would be top of mind. Uh, The first way would be to leverage AI for anomaly detection. So AI powered intrusion detecting systems um, can continuously monitor network traffic and can learn the normal behavior of network and then raise alerts when deviations or anomalies occur. And then threat intelligence APIs can integrate intelligence feeds into the IDS to cross-reference the detected anomalies with known threat indicators like malicious IP addresses or malware signatures. And then you have AI-powered predictive analytics. So AI can predict potential security threats based on historical data, current trends, and those aforementioned threat intelligence feeds to bring a preemptive mindset to threat mitigation. One of the most important things I think that, you know, we all agree upon is that truly winning the cyber battle and, you know, achieving cyber resiliency is avoiding the attack, uh, not just being able to effectively respond when the attack happens or, you know, have high functioning incident response practices. All right, great, thanks Nate. Jay, what's, uh, what's your
0: perspective on this? The only way that we're going to be able
2: to scale our ability to respond to any cyber type threat is going to be through the use of uh, AI and machine learning uh, to reduce the ability of the attacker to distract us. And so it, it is incumbent upon us uh, to be able to make sure that that these products are a part of the frontline defense. Um, in fact, most of the commercial grade security products uh, that you can purchase today really all have some kind of AI or machine learning model baked into them. And you know, as we look at things like new endpoint solutions or as we look at our software defined perimeter or access solutions, as we look at behavioral analytics, the only way to do any of these things are going to be uh, making sure that The machine learning is there. It's a part of the product. Uh, It's something that we know that we can go to before uh, just simply drowning in uh, seams full of cyber events. And so it's gonna be a number one priority uh, for us. And I know it's something that we're already working to get more and more comfortable with and more and more integrated into our operational response posture.
0: That's great, Jay. And actually, perfect uh, segue for my follow-up question here. So really, as a follow-up, how can automation and ma- machine learning assist in data security efforts across the Air Force? Again, the
2: the main way is going to be in, in that scale, right? And, and if you look at it simply from an economic perspective, you can't throw human beings at behaviors that adversaries can automate against you. And so this is going to be a battlefield which is driven by who can pilot AI better, and so in uh, this space of global competition uh, across the cyber attack terrain, we need to make sure that as they, as our adversaries, um, whether or not they're nation states or criminals or or people just looking uh, to kind of probe at our infrastructure, that our defenses are able to uh, rise to meet that challenge without having to just throw uh, tons and tons of of cyber operators at it. We have amazing cyber operators. Uh, They're among the best in the world. Uh, We're very proud of what they do, but we could not possibly make them fast enough. And so making it possible for our workforce to be AI competent and AI competitive are going to be key for us uh, to keep our edge in
0: the cyber terrain. Great, thanks, Jay. Nate, any thoughts to share on this one?
1: Yeah, it's interesting that Jay was talking about you know the that this is not a a people magnitude solution, um, but what you know something that he said that about making our cyber operators more AI proficient and AI competent. You know, I see AI being able to contribute to that not just in the operation space, so more of a workforce development, human centric approach under you know understanding the security capabilities of our operators means that we've got to have our finger on the pulse of you know each one of their individual strengths weaknesses you know level of knowledge and their knowledge gaps so security learning and competency development shouldn't be applied in a one size fits all model because each one of our operators is different so ai and automation we can use that to personalize security awareness, learning and development based on specific weaknesses and areas that need to be improved. Um, you know, we have the ability to move past the standard annual training CBT model and implement tailored training plans, which can be dynamic um, with the integration of AI and machine learning and can mature with the analysis of our end user competencies, as well as the rapidly maturing and increasingly complex threat landscape, which Jay mentioned as well. So to pile on to what Nate said, AI and ML ops in the Air Force
2: are an interesting topic. The current state of things are that we have a lot of the building blocks for how to make this work uh, correctly, but we need to tackle it in a more cohesive way. So we do have, Things like Platform One, which does provide a certain amount of CI/CD pipelines. We we obviously have the container orchestration. We have some of the the code scanning and delivery mechanisms. We have our uh, Cloud One ecosystem, uh, but that doesn't really uh, directly provide best practice around this. And so the places where this is is happening are embedded inside of various program delivery elements. So your PMOs. And so you would have things like large platforms or weapon systems that are taking advantage of uh, AI ML and are iterating their own communities of practice on top of that. And so we are still in the process of identifying Uh, those communities of practice and trying to find the right set of services to elevate up to the enterprise. We know that, for instance, um, having a more enterprise grade uh, set of CICD pipeline runners would really help this process. Uh, We know that some of the standardized structures and and like a marketplace for AI and ML models would also help this. There are series of experimentations that are going on um, inside of the Vault ecosystem and inside of our uh, Envision Warp Core ecosystems. So these things are happening. They aren't happening in a centralized way. Um, and it's something that as we continue down our journey of AI and ML sophistication, we're looking to get better at by making it easier for the next groups who are taking advantage of these models to do the right thing. And that's a pattern broadly in the Air Force where we try and and let the edges do the innovation and then the center comes in, helps to figure out best practice, uh, and then codify, promote, and scale that best practice.
0: That's great. You know, we've got time for one more question, and I'd like to start with Nate on this one. So how can generative AI support coding best practices to improve cybersecurity as well as accelerate product delivery cycles?
1: Well, Matt, the most important word you used in that question is support. Um, they're, you know are so many conversations happening in the media and in professional circles and in industry and our government about how AI is going to replace or supplant humans. But AI should in fact be complementing our human expertise. So AI models can be trained to recognize patterns in coding which are indicative of common vulnerabilities and they can provide those developers with early warnings and suggestions on how they can improve the code. So you're reducing the feedback cycle for faster, better code. Generative AI can also assist in developing secure code templates um, that follow established security guidelines. And those templates will reduce the likelihood of introducing vulnerabilities during the development process and then, lastly, AI can be used for automation um, for to be to support uh, security testing procedures, and those procedures could include penetration testing, vulnerability scanning, and conducting compliance checks uh, to ensure that the code adheres to the security standards against which it's being developed. All right, great, thanks, Nate Jay. What are your
0: thoughts on this one?
2: I'll focus on the product delivery side of that. And so while there are developed tools, you know, as Nate said that help to identify code vulnerabilities and uh, alongside of sort of standard code linting tools and other code quality checks, what we're going to really need AI to do is to help us to get our arms around the billions of lines of Air Force first party Uh, source code so that we can refactor uh, and modernize it. And so we have a number of legacy platforms. We have a number of uh, legacy business and uh, C2 systems that we are going to need to bring into the modern era. And again, uh, AI and machine learning help us with the sheer scale of that. You know, if we are moving something from an older language, right, we all sort of have stories about the COBOL, in Fortran um, years, but it could be something, you know, it was antiquated uh, Java code or, you know, C um, written for a certain bespoke platform. There are all kinds of opportunities for us to find AI um, and ML tools and capabilities to help accelerate and provide leverage on the understanding and modernization of those platforms. And so, Today, we have a massive um, software uh, engineering group or SWAG community that focus on those legacy platforms and how we're able to accelerate that ecosystem is not going to be by throwing more people at it, but by throwing people who are empowered with smart tools. And that's gonna be something that we look more and more at um, in the future. Again, to tackle just the sheer scale of the many, many years in technological investment that we have made.
0: And thank you, Jay and Nate, for joining us today. And big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. If you're interested in staying up to date on the best practices and proven strategies for leveraging innovative technologies in federal, state, and local government, be sure to visit governmenttechnologyinsider.com. I'm your host, Matt Langan. And until next time, so long.